0: Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Stanford is going, going, back, back to Pasadena. and it come back to the Bay with a win over UCLA? And Could this be the last time the Cardinal walk into the Rose Bowl for a conference game? Plenty of subplots to dive into. Stanford meets number 12 UCLA Saturday night, and that will be topic number one on this episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity on the Believe Network and presented by Bet Online. Great to have you with us here on Thursday, October 27th, 2022. Hi, I'm Troy Clarity. I'm, I'm, I've been hosting this show for seven years now. It's great to be following Stanford football again. And let's see if the Cardinal can do some big things in one of the biggest stages that college football has to offer cardinal at three and four on the season winners of back-to-back games hoping to keep it going against a very very tough ucla squad the head coach chip kelly the quarterback dorian thompson robinson the running back zach charbonnet and a much improved defense so a big test awaits the cardinal really good content i hope awaits you on this show at least that's what we strive for we hope that you'll agree We'll have two special guests on this episode. We'll talk to Stanford edge rusher, Stephen Heron. I think the edge is going to be a big, big factor for Stanford in this game against UCLA. And Stephen has come up big in the Rose Bowl before against the Bruins. We'll talk with him about that, plus the Cardinals' overall defensive improvement. And we're at about the midway point of Pac-12 play. No better to shine a spotlight around the entire conference as a whole than a true renaissance man, filmmaker, author, and an all-around good dude, but you most see most on the Pac-12 network, my man Yogi Roth. Mr. Pac-12 football himself, looking forward to getting his thoughts on how Stanford has fared so far this season and uh, what the Cardinal can do and what the Pac-12 can do on a national stage going forward subscribe to the tree cast it's always your friendly reminder to do so via your favorite listening app we are there for you no matter where you want to go and this is my, in case you don't know who I am, if you're in case you're just joining the show for the first time, it's great to have you here. Hi, how you doing? Uh, my 30th year following Stanford football, ninth year of Pac-12 Network play-by-play. I'm actually on soccer duty in Berkeley on Thursday afternoon. That should be fun. First year of football play-by-play duty on the national radio side for the Compass Media Networks. And with Stanford at UCLA this Saturday, it's probably a great time to announce that my Compass Media Network slate begins this Sunday as I'll be sticking around and heading to SoFi Stadium and being on the national radio call for the 49ers at the Rams. Boy, am I fired up to be calling NFL uh, games on the national platform. Dream come true. Looking forward to firing that up starting on Saturday. Hey, the Niners make any transactions of interest lately? (laughs) Chris McCaffrey will be playing his second game for the 49ers against the Rams. That should be fun. Can't wait to be at SoFi. But on Saturday night, I'm looking forward to being at the Rose Bowl, checking out Stanford and UCLA. We'll give you three things you need to know about that game coming up in just a moment. Head to betonline.ag to join and receive your 50% welcome bonus with your first deposit. Make sure to use the promo code Believe. that's B-L-E-A-V, to receive your rewards. BetOnline, where the game starts. Three things you need to know from a Stanford perspective. As the Cardinal, head down to Pasadena to face the Bruins. Let's start it off with number one. And we'll give you a more in-depth injury report in a couple of minutes for Stanford. But the headline for this week... Running back Casey Philkins, who missed much of the second quarter against Arizona State, came back in in the second half, then got knocked out late in the third quarter on a late hit by the Sun Devils. Philkins probably done for the year. David Shaw announcing that during his weekly press conference on Tuesday. So an already thin running back room gets even thinner. And then there's this. Freshman four-star recruit running back Arlen Harris announced his decision to enter the transfer portal earlier this week so now Stanford's running back core basically consists of Caleb Robinson and Brendan Barrow and anyone else in the mix we had Glenn Milburn on the show last week can we give him a call see if he's got any eligibility left well on Tuesday I asked David Shaw a what he could tell us about the Arlen Harris situation and b a snapshot of what the running back room looks like now
1: Caleb Robinson and and Brendan Barrow are ready to go um, we've been playing both of them in spots uh, now going to lean on those guys quite a bit, um, or not on the football team. So I don't have any comment about, um, that, uh, we've had a lot of guys volunteer. Um, uh, we have a lot of guys on our team that played running back at some point in time in their lives. Uh, we'll take a look at a few of them. So, uh, we've got, a uh, got a lot of options, but, um, uh, for the most part, though, um, Caleb and Brendan will uh, will carry the load there.
0: Yeah, we'll talk about more of the effects on the entire Stanford offense, the running back situation, and its potential effects on the Stanford offense as a whole later in the show. Yogi Roth will certainly help us out there. Uh, we wish Arlen Harris the best, and we wish Casey Filkins some quick recovery. Let's move on to number Stanford's last game has been decided by a grand total of four points. A one-point loss to Oregon State, two-point win at Notre Dame, one-point win over Arizona State. Last two weeks, Stanford has found ways to win close games. That's certainly a feather to stick in the Cardinals' cap, no? Shaw,
1: on what that says about this team. We just needed this team to get the experience of being in one of those games and finding a way to win. Um, Because once you do it a couple of times, then you can get comfortable uh so our team you know through all that we've been through and all the injuries and all the difficulties uh we're there in the fourth quarter um and we don't have a lead and there's no panic because i guys we've been here before and we've come through before so they just go out there and work hard and trust and believe and uh and make the plays necessary to find a way to win so uh, last couple weeks have been huge, uh, just as far as our entire team feeling like, hey, we can be in this close game and we can make enough plays to win the game. It's
0: David Sean. That being said, Stanford's going to have to do something against UCLA that it has not done in almost 120 minutes of football: score touchdowns. Stanford center Drake Nugent has mixed emotions about how the Cards have been winning lately despite not punching it in for six.
2: Definitely been frustrating for sure. You know, we've been moving the ball well. We just got to finish in the end zone. Um, You know, like, Levi had that holding penalty against AC that brought back the touchdown, and then I had my personal foul, and both those drives probably would have ended up scoring touchdowns. Um, So, like, that's 14 points off the board right there. And, like, if we would have ended up losing that game, like, I would have felt, like, worse. And, like, granted, it was kind of hard to, like, digest that win because I feel like as an offensive line we didn't really play well enough to win but like we still squeaked it out Um, but yeah definitely got to score some more points put some points on the board help our defense out because they've been playing great lately Um, so yeah just more points overall for sure
0: yep agree 100% Stanford's got 115 minutes and 5 seconds of game time without scoring a touchdown and they've won both of those games incredible let's move on to number 3 and you realize this could be the last time Stanford walks into the Rose Bowl as a conference opponent, right? I mean, the Bruins are slated to head to the Big Ten, along with USC in 2024. We covered that in depth when the TreeCast headed down to L.A. in late July for Pac-12 Football Media Day. You want to go back in the vault and check out that episode. I highly suggest you do, to, so, do so. We had uh, Bernard Mirror, the Stanford Athletic Director, uh, on uh, during, during the course of that show. Always an insightful chat with him. But this could be the last time that the Cardinal play on college football's most sacred ground. There's nothing like the Rose Bowl. We all know this. And it's a big reason why I'm actually headed down there this week to pay my respects to the building just in case. David Shaw has played games at the Rose Bowl. He's coached games at the Rose Bowl. And he has won the Rose Bowl, as in the actual game that's played there
1: every January 1st second. I asked David Shaw what that building means to him. I'm a bit of a traditionalist that I still hope that we'll have um, games against UCLA and USC in the near future, even after this change happens. Um, But uh, it's a special place. And uh, we've had a lot of special moments there. Two Rose Bowl victories um, for for our staff and the, the players that are involved in those games. And those games are special lot of crazy wild finishes down there uh, including including 2020 and um, JJ's three touchdown game down there before and game winner and all kinds of uh, wild games down there so um, a little bit of nostalgia but I still have a feeling that we'll still find a way to play each other um, even after uh, this this change happens
0: yeah yeah that would be nice that would be nice and look anytime anytime Stanford is giving me an excuse to walk into that building whether it's in late October or ideally on New Year's Day, man, those are fun. I've been to three of them for Stanford. Awesome stuff. I'm in. I'm in. Anytime I get that chance, I'm in. It's a special place, special place, and I hope we're. I kind of hope we're not saying goodbye to it on Saturday. Those are three things. Stephen Heron, Stanford edge rusher, coming up in a couple of minutes. Pac-12 Networks football analyst Yogi Roth after that. First, though, this more in depth injury report. We told you about Casey Filkins being out for the foreseeable future and perhaps for the entire remainder of the year. Besides him, cornerback Ethan Bonner is doubtful, so that likely means more of Nick Toomer in that spot. And he had a pretty good game last week, I thought, even though he got called for that holding call. That was correct. Uh, that uh, negated his interception and run back to the goal line against Arizona State. Those would have been nice points to have, but that likely means more of Nick Toomer at that spot. Linebacker Jacob Mangum-Farrar is questionable. Two edge rushers. Aaron Armitage, questionable. David Bailey, probable. We'll still see freshman Ernest Cooper in there for some sp- for some snaps, no matter what. And I'm not mad at that at all. More on Ernest Cooper when we talk to Stephen Heron in a couple minutes. And uh, offensive tackle Barrett Miller, questionable, but looking better as he has missed the past uh, few games and has been part of the revolving door at uh, the offensive tackle position. And even despite that, uh, all the shuffling that Stanford has had to do in that position itself. Again, six different guys have played offensive tackle for Stanford this year. Uh, Those guys have tended to do relatively well somehow. So that is your in-depth injury report, at least as I say this on late Wednesday night. The defense has really come to play for Stanford over the past few weeks. We went into this um, after in our, pre- our post-episode uh, after the Arizona State game, and I said, look, right now I'm about to say something that, that I never thought I would say this season. Stanford football is being led by its defense and its special teams. The defense much more aggressive of late, and it's showing. It's absolutely showing. Getting results and getting, and getting the uh, production that it needs to get, shutting out the Arizona State Sun Devils the final 44 minutes of that game and limiting Notre Dame to just 14 points in South Bend a couple weeks ago. But perhaps the best thing about all of it is that it's truly been a team effort. It hasn't been one unit in particular outshining the others. It's been everyone getting into the mix. On Tuesday, I asked Kendall Williamson, as I've noticed that, you know, the defensive line has been a big part of the turnaround for Stanford defensively. I asked Kendall Will- Williamson, the Stanford safety, how much the defensive line's improvement so far this year has helped out the secondary.
3: Uh, Stephen coming up with with great pressure, great sacks, and everything like that, it completely changes how we're able to play and also just the ability that the quarterback has to sit in the pocket sit in the pocket um got guys a, l- a little bit more antsy a little bit more eager to throw um and also those throws typically are not as accurate so it definitely helps us on the back end um giving us a better chance i feel like to play the ball and everything like that and also their wide receivers and tight ends don't get as good of a chance to get like the perfect ball in the perfect situation that's
0: Kendall Williamson and the very first name he mentioned was Cardinal Ed Rusher Stephen Heron and after Wednesday night's practice I headed down to the farm and chatted with Stephen from New Albany Indiana he had a big game in a familiar setting a couple of weeks ago we discussed that and so much more with Stephen Heron who joins us on the TreeCast with Troy Claire All right, Stephen Sanford versus UCLA coming up this Saturday. We'll get your deeper dive into that matchup here in a moment or so, but first big picture kind of stuff. And over the last couple of games, this Stanford Cardinal squad has been carried by its defense and its special teams. Just take me through the last few weeks and and what it's taken for the defense to kind of take center
3: stage for the Cardinal here of late. Um, I think finally, you know, we kind of just relied on each other. We started to develop that trust between the front end and the back end. I think we really started to come together and just, like, again, just develop that trust and really just lean on that trust day in and day out. Our front seven is trusting our back end, and our back end is fr- trusting our front seven. We're relying on each other for them to take away the first look and for us to get the sacks and get that pass rush onto those quarterbacks. Um, I really think that, you know, we finally just kind of sat down and realized um, you know, it, it came down to us and we, we had to be more comfortable with it with the play calling from the coaches You know, we had a discussion with them and talked about what we felt most comfortable in uh, scheme wise and what they felt like we could play best And we I think we came to a, a very good understanding and, and as, as you can see it's been paying off as of lately So I'm, I'm really excited about that.
0: You mentioned the relationship between the front end and the back end and Talking to uh, Kendall Williamson earlier this week He certainly made sure to uh, to, 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 to give you all the credit up front for helping make their jobs easier How in some ways do you guys up front make the secondaries job
3: easier? Um, I think with them taking away that first look, you know, the quarterback, he's got to sit it down. He's got to sit down. He's got to find a second look. He's got to go through his progression. And I think for that, I think I, I trust our front seven to get to that quarterback, regardless of who we play. I think we're good enough to get off blocks. I think it just takes us a little, you know, a little bit of time, um, as it does any defensive line. You, you, you know, you're not, not always going to win off bat and make and win off your first move. So you know, going through your progressions, going through your reads as a as a defensive lineman, as an as an edge player, making sure you can get there to the quarterback. And sometimes it just takes a second. Um, I think with them taking away that first. Reed we're able to get there put some pressure on that quarterback and if we're not not able to bring him down affect him in many other ways Uh, for example Jackson Moy has batted down probably two or three passes this year we've gotten some sacks we've gotten sack fumbles and we've really just been able to spill him out of the pocket
0: where did Ernest Cooper come from
3: Honestly, Ernest Ernest Cooper is a machine. Um, he, you know, he, honestly, if I'm he hasn't had he he did not have a one snap with us since since fall camp until until game week last week. I think Wednesday to be to be exact. Um, seeing him come out, you know, we talked to I talked to him pregame. Let him know that mistakes are going to be made. You know, I don't think you have to worry about that. Anderson knows that putting you in that game, mistakes are going to be made, whether they're good ones or bad ones. Just roll with the punches, run through everybody 100 miles an hour, and you can't lose. And that's exactly what he did. I mean, he he came out with the same stats I did in plays. I think. 12 plays in the game. So, I mean, I'm really looking forward to him to make more and more plays week in and week out. I think he's somebody that's coming off the bench, and he's really taking a lot off individually my legs and a lot of other guys' legs. Just coming in, he's making plays. We're not wasting those rushes when he gets in the game.
0: Yeah, I don't think it's a stretch to say that the entire trajectory of the game changed Mm -hmm. uh, once he stepped on the field. Very evident from his first two plays from scrimmage, Mm -hmm. uh, the things that he was able to bring to the Cardinal uh, for the rest of that one. I want to go back to the result in uh, South Bend for a second or so, uh, because, you know, that was. Your home state New mm-hmm. Albany Indiana mm-hmm. it's on the opposite end of the state towards right. the Kentucky side but but still in your home state mm-hmm. you had a whole bunch of folks in the building that Indeed. day just, just take me and you had a great performance as well especially in the second half just take me through that day as you remember and how special that might have been given who was in
3: the stands checking you out uh, for me I mean it's, it's always good to have family in the stands but it's, it's great when you can get Little League coaches and, and, and childhood friends to come to the game and support you. You know, um, playing at Vanderbilt last year was kind of the closest bet I had to home. We didn't get to play Notre Dame during COVID season. So I haven't been uh, back to Indiana yet to play a game since then. Um, so with pl- playing back home was really big for me. Like I said, I had Little League coaches. I had family friends, cousins, aunts, uncles. My Both of my grandparents were able to make it to the game. Um, so for me, it was, it was a dream come true getting able to see that, taking that picture after the game, realizing that I had probably 40 to 50 people show up at that game for me. It was really big, kind of brought some tears in my eyes. it's another thing just to be able to play in front of your family. You know, it, it changes the game and it changes how you attack it. You just feel like you have more in your corner, more people that are supporting you, so you just feel like you're indestructible sometimes.
0: And plus, you have also had that happy flight home too. I'm sure that didn't feel too bad.
3: No, that felt great, especially beating a good team like Notre Dame. You know, this may not be the Notre Dame who's top ten every year, but with that being said, this is a good, a good Notre Dame team with the same athletes. They're just struggling putting it all together, just like we are from time to time. Um, you know, I think that happens from time. This is this is Division One football is a good league, regardless if you're playing in the. American League, Conference USA, anything like that, the entire Power Five. It's just sometimes, sometimes it can it can just be hard. You know, it's, it's you know these guys at other places are getting the same the same scholarship you are playing the same ball you are week in and week out watching the same film. You know, they're trying to they're trying to make it to the next level just like you are. So at the end of the day, it's a big competition. It's it's everybody coming together playing your one eleventh and trying to do your job and that, and that's how you win win it for your team. So much was made coming into the
0: season about the uh, shift in scheme defensively that we saw a little bit uh, towards the end of the season when things got shifted around a little bit um, in November. And, of course, that became the rule uh, for for this upcoming year. Now you're technically an edge rusher, not just an outside line, linebacker, but an edge guy. D- did anything change for you schematically as a result of the, uh, of the scheme change?
3: Oh, I think, honestly, we – we just drop a little less. I think before, you know, sometimes both of our O's would have to drop in certain situations, especially once we got in the base first, um, playing like 12 personnel, 13 personnel, just bigger personnels offensively playing those we had to play base and sometimes we had to drop more. Now I think we can we can finally just let those edge guys in my room, allow them to just focus on one thing rather than having to learn two and three different positions really. Focus on one position um, from time to time you'll drop, but you know, then those are, those are special things, you know, away from the nickel or to the field, whatever it may be. Um, but it, it's much simpler for the guys and I think it's allowing younger guys to be able to step up earlier focus on those things because it doesn't have to come down to Anderson putting you in at special times during the game now he can throw you in because it's it's, it's so much simpler
0: let's talk about UCLA and before we talk about this weekend got to hop in the way back machine to the last time y'all walked into the Rose Bowl two years ago the very end of that of that bizarre 2020 season and that huge long road trip the Mm -hmm. road show and what a finish That game was. It came down to the very final play, and you made the stop on the two-point conversion that UCLA was going for to win it uh, in in, in overtime. What do you remember from that one?
3: Uh, From that game, I mean, I didn't do everything perfect, but for that game, I think I think on that road trip is where guys really started to focus on um, playing it one play at a time. I feel like um, early in that year, you know, starting off 0-2, kind of similar to how we started off this year. You know, guys focusing on an entire series, the mistakes you made during a series, rather than compartmentalizing your mistakes from play to play and realizing that now we're in a new play, go make a new play. You know, you know make, up for, make up for the mistake. Let's find a new way to win here. Um, you know, we've, we've made plenty of mistakes. You know, sometimes teams are converting on third down or, you know, maybe converting on second down to get a new series. With that being said, okay, you know, let's, let's make things happen. Let's get them back to forth and let's find a way to win. Um, that, that series in particular, um, you know, I just did my job. Um, the, the, the play call we call, I didn't do anything other than my job. You know, I think, I think sometimes in that in that series during that week at practice, I kind of struggled with uh, maybe getting my eyes else, elsewhere in the backfield, trying to read the quarterback rather than just coming downhill and making a play. And in that game, I remember, you know, I seen the call from the sideline and realizing, just thinking to myself, just just do your job, just do your job. If if it gets outside wherever it goes, as long as it doesn't come in my gap and doesn't come downhill straight downhill, then it's 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 not me and I can't I can't be upset with that. You know, just just make your
0: Well, doing your job is going to be very critical for this week's matchup against the UCLA Bruins. Of course, everyone talks about Dorian Thompson Robinson. He gets top billing, rightfully so, but that's a bruising, rushing attack that you also have to deal with as well. Zach Charbonnet leading the way as well. From your perspective... How critical is the edge position going to be in determining Stanford's fate defensively against the Bronx?
3: So the edge position in the run game, I think we have to come down here. We've got to splatter pullers. We've got to get hands on guys. and I think we have to be aggressive up front. I think we can do that. Um, we can begin to take away the run game. Like you said, Zach Charbonnet is one of the best running backs in the nation. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't think that you can necessarily take him away completely, but you can, you can begin to silence him. You can break him down. You can, you can give Chip Kelly um, more and more ways to try to get him the ball rather than just running him straight downhill. If you let him do that, he's going to end up with another 300-yard game, which he's had this season. Um, as far as, as far as pass-wise, I think that. Honestly, we just have to win. We have to win our one-on-ones. There's going to be times for him, um, you know. We have to figure out where the slides going. We have to we have to talk with Anderson up in the box. We have to figure out where we can get one-on-ones, and we have to exploit those. And we have to win. Without winning those, we're not going to win this game. DTR, like you said, rightfully so. Um, I think he's finally got his confidence, and, and not that he wasn't good in years past, but I think as as you can see, he's finally putting it all together. You know, he is he's an NFL guy, and I think he's finally putting it on on all regards. He's coming in with his run game. He feels confident in the pocket. You know, when when his when his line is giving it up on the edge or wherever it may be he's finding a way out and he's making plays with his legs whether it's downfield um, you know getting corners off of the receivers because of the scramble drill whatever it may be he's getting guys off of those off of those people and he's finding ways to make plays with his legs um, and, and, and his arms not too bad I, either you know he's making plenty of NFL throws and um, I can't wait to play him you know every time playing him he talks a little bit he knows he's good he, he knows he's athletic he knows he can make a play and he's, he's going to stretch it from time to time um, honestly I love playing him he's a good guy Great team to play against, and I, I just can't wait.
0: All right, let's wrap it up on this. Um, how has the mood been amongst the guys this week, coming off of a two-game winning streak? Maybe as compared to how it was going into uh, going into Notre Dame per, per se. How's how's the mood been amongst the guys this week?
3: Um, I think going into Notre Dame, so what we tried to do as as a leadership council, as uh, leaders on the defense and, and around the team, was was preached to our guys that that first. First, you go into hoping, you know, throughout the offseason, you know, you hope you're going to win. You hope you're going to do this. Hope you're going to put things together. Right. And then, you know, by by first game, you need to be in that in that in that no stage. Right. So between that, there's the stage of believing, believing that you're going to get the job done. And I think you do that through your offseason, through fall camp, you know, spring ball, all of these times for you to make plays and get your confidence built up for game one. Then you come into knowing. Um, I think we kind of came into that till a little late. and I think we finally got there, Notre Dame week, knowing that we can make a play, knowing that we're going to win this game and not believing anything else. You know, that's, that's the mentality of, of, of top five teams every single year. The Alabamas of the world, Clemsons, Notre Dame in, in their top years. Um, those teams right there, those, that's the mentality. Regardless if they win or lose, they didn't think anything else throughout the game. Um, We're trying not to change it at all during this week. We're trying to let the guys know that you have to know you're going to win. This may be one of the best teams in the pack, but I honestly think that if we attack this game just like we have every other game for the last two weeks, it's not going to turn out any different. Make your plays. They're going to make plays regardless. Rely on your technique, sit back on that and, and, and just take one play at a time, make your plays, and, and we'll see what the outcome is into the, the game. I'm confident. Uh, a
0: lot at stake for Stanford, and I know that's going to be a heck of a contest, and Stanford's going to put up a heck of a fight. can't wait to see what it all turns out, and hopefully it results in another happy flight home. This one much shorter than from South Bend, but yeah, still, be nice. still not bad coming up from, up from SoCal. Steven, thanks a bunch. I love watching you play. Thanks a bunch. I appreciate the time. We'll talk again soon. Stay healthy.:
3: Thank you so much.
0: That's Stephen Heron, and uh, that final play he made against UCLA on the two-point conversion was just absolute nails. And what a way! I was so exhausted after watching that game. I can only imagine what it was like actually playing in that game, especially you know given how the previous three weeks had gone leading up to that game for Stanford to close out the twenty twenty season. But uh, Herron with with some really terrific stuff taking this inside the Cardinal scheme from an edge rusher standpoint, and I, I really think that defensively much of what dictates how Stanford fares is going to happen on the edges. Can Stanford seal the edge? Can they contain Dorian Thompson-Robinson? Can they help bottle up Zach Charbonnet and that running attack and help funnel in guys to the linebackers? And can everybody arrive angry to the ball carrier, no matter whom he is, and bring him down, shy of the marker or goal line, preferably? I think a lot of that is going to be dictated, not just with the guys up front, but specifically on the edge. So it'll be good to have David Bailey back for this. We'll see if Aaron Armitage is also in that mix. And Ernest Cooper. Hey, let's see if you can make some make some jaws drop and open up some eyes two weeks in a row, my friend. Looking forward to seeing how things shake out up front for the Cardinal again defensively. And Stephen Heron, I think, I have a suspicion, could potentially play a big hand in how that goes. Well, don't look now, but we're pretty much at the halfway point of Pac-12 conference play, and already some some intriguing storylines have popped up, and, and we're setting ourselves for what could be a, a very nice little race throughout the month of November. What factor could Stanford potentially have, and who are the top teams that we're going to be, need to be watching down the stretch? I got the perfect guy to ask those very questions. You see him all the time on the Pac-12 Network. Matter of fact, if you watch the TV broadcast of Arizona State-Stanford last week, you watched him on the call with my man J.B. Long, and he'll be on the call this week down in Tucson between USC and Arizona with my other man, Ted Robinson. But here's my man, Yogi Roth from the Pac-12 Network, joining us here on the TreeCast. Yogi, thanks a bunch. Always appreciate the time. How you doing?
4: i'm doing great man i've i've heard you all season long right i get you twice a week in between my ears and i love it man i i enjoy learning about the program i've told you this in your face i want to say to your listeners do the best job out of anybody covering this team insight personality hearing players get interviewed like all the things that you know advance a broadcast for sure but get allow people to get to know a team so Good to be on our, our yearly catch-up session, it seems like, on the TreeCast.
0: Yeah, yes, indeed. Thank you so much for the uh, kind words. And, of course, it is time for our – we try to make this an annual tradition by bringing you in here um, on the show. And as mentioned, you were at Stanford Stadium last week. You saw Stanford come away with that 15-14 win. Over Arizona State, I called it. Stanford wins by two feet, (laughs) the foot of Joshua Cardi and the foot of Elijah Badger that landed out of bounds. An ugly win, but I, I don't think that the Stanford program is really in any position to complain about how it wins. It just needs to win. What were your impressions of Stanford as you walked out of Stanford Stadium last week?
4: You know, it's interesting. I went back and watched the game back again last night. You know, as as you often do, just to try to hear what it was like. How'd you handle certain moments? And in real time. Standing next to JV and our, you know, our Mr. Everything in between us, San Paul, it's like, it felt like a, a huge game. I get the crowd wasn't sold out and like people weren't screaming from the rafters, but man, it felt the players down on the field. Every snap felt like a season was on the line and it kind of was, you know, bowl eligibility. We know the realities of the remaining games, head coaching situation at Arizona State you know, Stanford and what happened in the Oregon State game, let alone other games, like, other than the Oregon game, I, I felt like they'd been in every game. They just hurt themselves. And I, I say that because it was just my biggest takeaway was, what a game. Like, and I, I called SC Oregon State, what a game. Mm-hmm. You've Been at Utah, like, pretty much been all over the league this year. Um, And I get the environment wasn't like some of those, but, man, it felt like the play was so competitive. This, so, that, that was my biggest takeaway man honestly it was like everybody left it on the grass
0: yeah and it took down to the final whistle three seconds left when badgers foot landed out of bounds and those uh, ruled incomplete and stanford able to win back-to-back games and take that with them um onto the plane with them as they head down to la this week but probably the big thing to watch out would imagine for stanford this week is the running back room casey filkins knocked out of the game late in the third quarter He is out for this week, and there's a pretty decent chance, according to David Shaw, that he is out for the remainder of the year. So right now, Stanford's running back room looks like this. Um, Caleb Robinson, Brendan Barrow, and volunteers. How do you think that super thin running back room could affect Stanford going forward?
4: A lot. I think it's going to affect them a lot. Um, Now, I believe in Stanford has a system, right? So the easiest comparison is the Broncos from kind of when we were growing up didn't really matter who was the running back. They had their outside zone, their their zone scheme at the time and it was going to be what it was. And whoever happened to be back there was going to run for a thousand yards or whatever it was Trell Davis. And you kind of just look up the record books from him on down. I think there's something to that for Stanford. We've seen them, you know, look at the last two years, the amount of guys that touched the ball in the backfield. Now they haven't thrived in the run game. That's why I think it'll be an impact for them. Um, but all they need that guy to do, in my opinion, with what they have with Tanner, what I think their playmakers outside can do, is just do enough. And I think that those guys did, you know, enough in the opportunities they got Saturday, right? Like you would have loved on that run in the fourth quarter if you if you heard the broadcast. I was like, he needs to get down in bounds. Like he does that, game's over, I think. I don't think we even have that final play that you referenced with the foot out of bounds. Um, but yeah, it's going to affect him. You know, the number one guy, number two guy. Now you've got two guys that don't have nearly the experience or, you know, like, I hate to say the ceiling, but like we knew what those other guys could be because we saw it so much in recruiting for these two. I don't know if we know yet what they could be. So big opportunity, but I think Stanford will feel the loss of, you know, their second straight starting running back being done for the foreseeable future.
0: Tough break for the Cardinal backfield. I'll get your further thoughts on Stanford UCLA coming up a bit later on in the show, but, uh, uh, let's look at the Pac-12 overall, and, and and the snapshot of it as of right now, it, it kind of seems like things have kind of gone according to form, at least the form that most of us thought that uh, things would take in the conference uh, back during the preseason when we're filling out ballots in July and trying to predict things. It, it It seems like for the most part, the top four teams that many folks expected to be in the top four are there right now as we head towards the end of October. Uh, any surprises to you as Pac-12 play has unfolded up and down the conference?
4: Um, Yeah, I, I, I'm not trying to go negative. Like Cal was a surprise for me. Sure. You know, I didn't think they'd be where they are currently, which is quarterbacks getting hit a lot, man. I mean, if you turn those games on. I thought UCLA would be really good coming in. I thought Oregon State didn't have a first-round pick but didn't have a weakness. And I think, you know, their schedule – The back-to-back games was as hard as I think you could set up back-to-back games. Like, I know Stanford's had a brutal run, Arizona's in the middle of a brutal run, but SC at home, and then to go to Utah, and those be their only two losses, I think they're better than probably a team when you just look at a record with two losses at this point in the season. Like, they got a chance to – they'll have a chance to get to 9-10 wins, I think, you know, moving forward. So they might be that. I think Washington probably is the maybe the bigger surprise because we didn't know. Like they were so inefficient on offense is probably the best word from a year ago to now. They're so explosive, right? They lead the league in shots downfield over 20 yards. Playmakers are just continually emerging defense. They've had a different starting defensive lineup in every game this year. You know, so we'll see if they can put it together. Like, so that's probably the two. Um, And then probably from week one to now it's Oregon in terms of what we saw. And now what we see, I think they're playing the best out of anybody in the league. Uh, So I don't know. I'm with you. I can't wait to see the finale. I hope, I don't want to say like, I hope teams stumble, but like, I hope we don't have to get to like a tiebreaker scenario. Like I'd love it to just be very clean and clear (laughs) because I've been, I've been tutored on the tiebreaker scenarios this week. And there's definitely a school in Salt Lake City that probably won't love the tiebreaker and how it works. (laughs) the way that we see it today
0: (laughs) so chaos might not be uh Utah's friend it's you mentioned uh, Oregon and of course you know they got off to that loss um against Georgia neutral site game in Atlanta but you had that result Utah losing at Florida and and folks from coast to coast were already starting to ride off the Pac-12 were you as freaked out about the Pac-12's non-conference results in week one as many of the college football talking heads seem to be
4: no one like we've gotten used to it right um two I think we saw like the influx of QBs into the league I mean you know it as well as anybody but 10 of the 12 starters at quarterback um as of like week one in college football in our league were not guys that began at that institution Right. Tanner McKee and Dorian being the two. Now you could add Oregon State, Ben Branson being the third one who signed out of high school to go to that school. But there was such an influx of talent that I was like, we're, we're going to be fine as a league. You know, knew the stumbling blocks, could no longer be there for Oregon, was bummed when Utah lost the way they did to UCLA, did not see that come. And that was a surprise in terms of the physicality that UCLA displayed and Utah did not in terms of not tackling in terms of just not winning at the at the point of attack at the line of scrimmage on the front seven but yeah I wasn't I wasn't completely like uh I wasn't years past right when Washington lost to Auburn or Oregon lost to You Ar- just felt like it was just like Boulder you were pushing up the hill I felt coming into the year it wasn't going to ever be that uh, and I and I'm glad to sit here now on Tuesday at the end of October heading into our first presentation of the CFP committee on Thursday to say okay uh, I think our league's in a really healthy position when we go in there and have to sell the league, you know, because we're not just selling a team at this stage. I've been on those meetings in years past, Troy, where you're just pushing, you know, Oregon because you know, they went and beat Ohio state and then you they lost to Stanford. And then you were kind of pushing them all season long. That was last year's story up until the title game right now. I'm looking at four teams that we're really pushing hard um, three with a loss and then, I think there's at least two other teams in Oregon state and Washington that you're talking top 25. Mm -hmm. That's just a different narrative than what it's been
0: kind of going along on that. What's your sense of what the playoff committee truly values and how could those values affect the PAC 12 standing? Obviously, you know, everyone needs to take advantage and take care of what it needs to do on the football field, but what's your sense of what the committee uh, tends to value and how could the PAC 12 potentially take advantage of that?
4: It's a great question. I think we won't know until a couple rankings come out. Uh, I know what it says, right? And their job is tasked to find the four best teams. When close, they have tiebreakers like conference championships, like head-to-head. What do they value more? Say Oregon wins the league. Say Georgia loses in the title game. Both have one loss. What do they value at the end of the season? A nine-game conference slate or a head-to-head in week one? We're going to find out. My experience being a part of this thing now for a while is that I think people in that room are often conflicted on four best, four bodies of work, or four best when given time to be the best. Four best rosters is my point. I say that because four best rosters, we already know who they are. Just go ahead and 24-7 it up and look at recruiting rankings and go Bama, Georgia, Clemson, Ohio State, and call it a day right? Like that's just reality when you look at star rankings, give them a month. Those may be the four best teams to prepare, to get their bodies right, but that's not what the sport is. Okay. So that one usually falls off the table first, but then I go to like historicals, like how valued are historicals? Probably a lot. They probably are. They're not supposed to be, but I think they are. So I I think there's a lot that um, is to be desired in the committee. Um, I think It often settles itself, right? Like we debate, we argue, we position, Mm -hmm. uh, but usually it settles itself. I think the most important thing now for every respective conference going into the presentation for your CFP positioning is to give context. And I feel like that's our job in the PAC-12 often is to give really good context to, I'll just take you through the history, COVID-19. We have to give context to what schools in the West Coast went through versus The South, right? You know this. Stanford last year was still meeting on Zoom. I bet teams in the South had very few meetings on Zoom, right? Starting in 2020, let alone in 2021. Right. So I think a big part of it is context is what I try to remember and and I love our commissioner, George Klayovkoff, of just guiding us to make sure that everybody in that room has another job too. So you're trying to do the job a little bit for them, help them out, right? They're an AD somewhere, they're a dignitary somewhere, they're a lawyer somewhere, whatever they have to do, uh, they have another job to do. So it's it's on us to arm them with the tools. And it's pretty cool, the tools to give the two representatives of the PAC-12, in our instance, the tools to then present to the rest of the people in the room, and that's how it works. So it's kind of cool in that regard. It's like the ultimate game of telephone. It's like our little group of five or six people in the PAC-12 presents to two people, and the CFP committee, they present to the 13 people on the committee, and then they make a decision. And then we kind of see every week, like, what does it seem like they value in the six-minute Reese Davis interview? And then you kind of go from there.
0: It <laughs> uh, should be intri- intriguing to watch over the next few weeks. And it's, it's why I never get all upset and all uptight about the first CFP rankings because you know what? A lot of things decide themselves in the weeks in November. And, and kind of along those lines in the Pac-12, as we sit here right now, who is your one team to beat in the Pac-12? Yeah,
4: I think the team that I would pick right now to play the best football is Oregon. They're playing the most complete football. I felt that going into last week's game. Uh, they proved it again. I think Utah and USC scare me the most. Like you go back and watch that game from you know two weeks ago, and Cam Rising obviously does his thing to finish. Excuse me. Caleb Williams played the best, I thought, individual game at quarterback that I've seen in the season in the league. Now, Bo was pretty masterful against UCLA. I don't want to take that away from him, but Caleb made some throws. Like, Bro, I put together a reel of 31 plays for our TV crew. I kind of send out clips every week, and I was like, just watch these 31. Just watch them, because there haven't <laughs> been guys in a while in this league that have made the throws. Okay, Donald made some of those throws. I want to talk about like recent guys. Like, We have guys that can make out of your mind throws but his elusiveness his feel in the pocket when he's under pressure and then be able to get out and still deal or run or galvanize like he hasn't been perfect every week he's had his peaks and valleys but he's scary when he's on you know and i felt that after the game it was like i can't wait to get to tucson and call this one on saturday because it felt like and it, talking to some people around sc this week after that loss they were ready to go play four more quarters, like. And I know that vibe, like that's what we had at SC when I was coaching there. I'm sure that's what Stanford had at times when they were on their runs. So I think they're scary. Uh so we'll see. I, I but I go Oregon one, probably SC, Utah, UCLA, like flip a coin as of now, because it's hard because they've suitably beaten each other, which leads you to the tiebreaker scenario that we referenced earlier
0: couple last things here for you let's talk more about the ucla bruins um at this point uh took one on the chin in eugene last week they're going to be ready to fight i'm sure this week uh, against stanford dorian thompson robinson that super bruising running game and and a much improved defense since in in a lot of ways uh it, it seems what are some things some bullet points that stanford fans might need to know about ucla
4: yeah, well, I, I love this game. Called it a few times, was hoping that we we would get it this week, just because anytime David Chuck Chip Kelly face off, it's it's a really cool opportunity to see two coaches who have tremendous respect for one another, um, have remained close friends since the Oregon-Stanford days, back in the day we all remember those games, to now. Um, and I just love being around those guys at, at Pac-12 events, media days, et cetera. Uh, I think things you need to know about UCLA are the following. Let's start on offense. They all know DTR, Zach Charbonnet, for sure. No problem there. But the style in which they shift, motion, crossing routes with Jake Bobo and their other weapons on offense, it's really impressive. Like they will isolate matchups where they think they can be successful. So I look at like the Stanford defense and we'll see what happens at the other corner. I thought Nicholas Toomer played a really, you know, it was really impressive when he, when he came in. Um do they feel like they can isolate him? What do they feel they could do to Ernest Cooper on the edge as a freshman when he's in? Like Ernest Cooper was the most impressive player I saw in the game. I'll be honest. Yep. And I'm saying, like, just look in the last drive when Emory Jones scrambles to his left from like the far right side of the field and just watch the speed of Ernest Cooper. I went back last night and I was like, I had to show my wife. I, you know, we talk about our wives on, the, on your podcast now, right? Uh, <laughs> I was just like, look, babe, look at this. Look at his closing speed. It was off the charts, so I'd imagine Chip Kelly's gonna say, "All right, when 44s in, let's see if we can attack him in our RPOs on read game, like try to put him in a bind." Per se, who would agree? Like those are the things. Like how do they attack Jackson Moy, who's playing really good? I think it's important to note that Chip does that as well as anybody in the league. Um, you could argue in, the, in in college football. On the flip side, they've really changed their tune from a year ago. Uh, Bill McGovern, a guy who coached me back in the day at Pitt. Uh, now as their defensive coordinator, along with Kenny Norton Jr., he's there. Everybody remembers him, of course, for everything he's done as a player in the Bay Area and everywhere and a bunch of other places. But this defense plays with an edge. Darius Moussao will be awesome at inside linebacker. This dude is a transfer from Hawaii, two-time All-Mountain West first-team linebacker, captain, just all everything. Leatu Latu, transfer from Washington, leading the nation in sacks, coming to the game against Oregon an absolute beast off the edge. You know, I, I, I'm really looking forward to seeing how Stanford, and I think they've gotten better here in the slow mesh of managing the ends, mm-hmm. right? Like you remember that we all remember the first quarter against Washington and what Braylon Trice and company were doing, just crashing down immediately, and just kind of collapsing the pocket. I'd imagine UCLA will try to do some of that and Stanford level their answers like they did last week against Arizona State. So important to know those two defensive players. Um, and I bet they think they could, probably line up and, and play some man coverage because I think at times Arizona State was impressive last week you know Terrence Rowe was impressive last week against John Humphreys like I think it's a confident defense they're probably excited to get back home and I think this game I don't know what the line is but I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be a really close game I think Stanford is gonna continue to play their better football as the year goes on and I expect this to be one that comes down to the end
1: yeah,
0: looking forward to being at the Rose Bowl uh, myself for this one. Well into the Saturday night. Let's let's see how the chess match goes. And I know that probably somewhere deep in the jungles of Tucson after he's done calling USC in Arizona, I suspect that Yogi Roth might be keeping an eye on Stanford UCLA as well. He's on the Pac-12 Network. Every year we get him in here on the TreeCast. Yogi, thanks a bunch. Always appreciate the time and the knowledge. Best of luck, best of health, and I can't wait to chat with you again soon.
4: You too, man. Thanks for the time. Love what you do. Tell your wife hello.
0: <laughs> All right, okay, I will. Hey, Kelly. Yogi says hi. <laughs> uh, Yogi's the man. Yogi's the man. Uh, he's he's a truly, truly good dude. I always enjoy him taking time out to join us at least once a year. And he's a big fan of a tree cast too, so uh, uh, so that that certainly doesn't hurt. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Yogi, when his thoughts on, on missing and the, the complete and near total depletion of the running back room, I mean, right, if you want to uh, stretch this back, you know, to the entire, you know, through the entire offseason as well, you know, obviously no Austin Jones, obviously no, uh, no, 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 no uh, Nathaniel Pete, EJ Smith gone, Casey Filkins gone. So basically you're down to your fifth string running back right now. If you want to you wanna pull it all the way back uh, to the end of last year or so, how can that not have a big effect on what Stanford tries to do offensively going forward? Could that affect the passing game? Well, more on that in a couple of seconds. But, and that was really fascinating stuff about how Yogi's part of the Pac-12's presentations to the college football playoff committee. And about how he's glad this year he gets to sell a league, and not just one team. Really intriguing stuff there. I wasn't really planning on on getting into into that part of it um, with Yogi because obviously you know we even had we haven't had our first rankings come out yet. As I say this, and and it's no real no real sense, no real point in getting all uptight about how those rankings look because everything tends to sort itself out in November anyway. But it's certainly on the Pac-12's radar, and look, outside of the SEC, I mean, can you argue that any other league has looked as good as the Pac-12 has so far this season? I don't think so. I don't think so. So that brings us to Stanford versus UCLA. And as mentioned, running back room, paper thin. Is there anything thinner than paper? There probably is. I'm sure there's there's some scientists out there who listen to the show who can be who who can gladly tell me <laughs> what things that are things that are thinner than paper. Ooh, that might make a good twenty thousand dollar pyramid category, or maybe not. I don't know. But super thin running back room. Yogi Roth with his thoughts on how that affects the Stanford offense. How does that affect what the offensive line needs to do? Stanford center Drake Nugent with his thoughts.
2: Everyone knows like we've had two transfers in January. EJ and Casey are both out, like, essentially, like, starting the year off, we're on our fifth string running back. But at the same time, Caleb had a lot of reps in the spring. Um, We kind of got used to him running the ball behind us, and he got used to running the ball with us, really. Um, And I think we definitely gained a lot of confidence in him in the spring, which honestly carried over. You know, he wasn't with us for summer conditioning because he's a walk-on. Um, and wasn't able to be here for that. But I still think that that spring was huge for him and for us as a unit to you know, be able to trust him. And even lately, he's been playing pretty well in the run game. Pass protection's been thrown up in there. So he's definitely been showing a lot of stuff on film for us to trust him. And we just got to make sure we open up some holes for him and so he can start to develop that trust in us and we can get him some yardage.
0: Yeah, it, it might fe- affect some of the nuances of blocking up front, but it still doesn't affect – Uh, the goals of the offensive line, I'd imagine, right? The goals are to open up holes and to make sure that those guys are as productive as they can possibly be. Does the lack of bodies in the running back room mean that Tanner McKee is now going to put it up 50 times a game every week going forward? Here are David Shaw's thoughts.
1: Uh, I I sincerely hope not. Um, That's not the game that we want to play. I was still surprised by that number. And when I saw the, uh, the stats at the end of the game is when you start playing with a lot of, of RPOs and slow meshes and, you know, you, you don't really determine how many, how many balls you throw because, you know, the, the game dictates that and the defense dictates that. So that was over 50 passes. Um, there's at least 10 or 12 of those passes were runs, um, that the, the situation dictated the quarterback, pull the ball and, and throw it. So, um, you know, not going to get pass happy around here. We still want to be balanced, still want to run the football. Um, you know, just like two weeks ago, I was shocked that Casey carried the ball 32 times. Um, a lot of those were RPOs that were given. So um, love for us to be as balanced as possible. Um yeah, playing against a, a, a tough front with some really good athletes, so <clears throat> don't want to just drop back and throw the ball a whole bunch. Yeah, Tanner
0: McKee, 57 pass attempts against Arizona State last weekend. According to Shaw, 10 to 12 of those were not actual passing plays called. It was part of the RPO, the run-pass option. You just take whatever the defense gives you. So so there's that. And, and look. The ideal world in David Shaw's mind, and you longtime listeners to the TreeCast know this because he's said it on this show on a couple of occasions. Ideally, David Shaw would love to be able to throw to score and get a lead and then run to mash down the clock and win. So that in the end, in the final analysis, when you get the end of the fourth quarter statistical summary, things look a lot more balanced between run and pass. Then they might at halftime, where he would he's not afraid to perhaps go maybe 60, 65% uh, in favor of the pass. Now, that being said, his pass run play selection against Arizona State in the first half last week was what, 35 to 8? So quite out of whack there. So of course Shaw would love balance in the final analysis, but you know, how's he how's he gonna get there? Can he get there? against a very difficult UCLA defense? We'll find out. We'll find out. And Stanford is, of course, facing another ranked team on the road. Bruins are ranked number 12 in the country. But that being said, Stanford is a different squad now than the one that struggled at home against USC and up in Seattle and in Eugene. David Shaw on how Stanford can get better results this time around against a ranked opponent.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. um hopefully we find a way to win um that's the big thing our uh early on i thought we played well against usc we didn't finish on the offensive side too many turnovers gave up a couple explosive plays did not play well against Oregon and washington um they they were riding high and we could not keep up um i think we're a better football team right now even though we're lacking in a couple of places a couple of starters not being with us uh, but I think as an entire team, I think we're playing better, <clears throat> playing better against the run. First and foremost, and <clears throat> Chip's going to challenge that. There's no question about it. They've got a big physical explosive runner on a big physical offensive line. So um, they're going to challenge that. Um, thought we played very well in the secondary. And uh, offensively, we found our groove in a couple of different ways. Uh, last couple of weeks, though, we still need to be better in the red zone. We have to score touchdowns against UCLA. We, we as much as Josh Cardi has has carried us, um, we can't kick a f- bunch of field goals against this team and expect to win. Uh, we have to be better in the red zone. We have to score touchdowns. We have to take advantage of those opportunities. We quarterbacks and receivers and tight ends have just missed each other. um, uh, Not in the open field, but but inside the 30 yard line, we missed each other way too many times. Um, We have an opportunity to make a throw and a catch. we got to make the throw and the catch. So, um that's how you stay in the game against a good team like this um so not to say it's going to be a shootout um but at the same time when you get those opportunities to score touchdowns you have to score touchdowns
0: yeah i cannot stress that last point hard enough got to get touchdowns man got to get touchdowns i mean field goals as it turned out were good enough to beat arizona state i promise you they will not be good enough to beat ucla I promise you that, unless there's one at the very end that Joshua Cardi needs to come on and kick. Stanford needs to get six. It needs to prevent UCLA from getting six. It needs to seal the edge. And hey, winning the turnover margin, the turnover battle, that wouldn't hurt either. Tall task, but let's see what happens. And we'll talk about it on the next episode of the Tree Cast. With my play-by-play duties for Compass Media Networks on Sunday, again, Niners-Rams at SoFi Stadium. Check your local listings on your radio dial nationwide, coast-to-coast. That's a pretty high-profile game. Um, This next episode of the TreeCast will likely come your way sometime on Monday. Then again, I might come back from L.A. on Sunday night and not want to talk at all. <laughs> but we'll come at you next time, uh, early next week, and uh, break down the things that we see and take away uh, between Stanford and UCLA. Looking forward to that. Big time thanks to our special guests, Stephen Haram and Yogi Roth. Of course, the biggest thanks goes out to you, most of all, for joining us on the show. Don't drink and drive if you do. You're the dumbest person on the planet. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay sane. Talk to you next week. Thank you for being with us here on the TreeCast with Troy Clarity on the Believe Network and presented by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B
3: L E A V on YouTube.